conditioned sankharas, sankhata dhammas, for you to begin to really uh, contemplate the fact that your condi- what your conditions, what conditioning is, the way you think, react, emotionally react, the, w- the thought patterns and mental habits that you've acquired, none of these are to be trusted. They're, they are conditioned into the mind um, quite without our, uh, uh, we, we have no control over the matter from the time we're born. We're subjected to a whole process of conditioning from parents, culture, peer groups, educational institutions, experiences on all kinds of ways, and just done. It becomes very, very complicated. The language we have, the the class that we're from, and the culture and so forth, uh, determine how we're going to interpret and see uh, our life's experiences. So in reflection on this, we're, we're, we're getting beyond the conditioning. That's why immediately you try to interpret your insights and maybe you have insight, knowledge, or experience, mystical experiences, but the interpretations are, are you have to, you tend to interpret it from the conditioned mind, which is conditioned out of avicca, not understanding the Four Noble Truths uh, in their three aspects, the Twelve Insights, then then the way we think, how we see the world and ourselves is, is from avicca. And that's why we can, we can really uh, misunderstand, exaggerate, underestimate, uh, just through the way we think, the, the self-view we have. When we talk about uh, insight and refuge and these, 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 this way of, this, this type of, uh, these terms that we use are uh, to realize that it's through the practice of Dhamma that, that these terms are, uh, begin to take on a, 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 an accuracy that they don't have if we're just making assumptions from our conditioned mind. It's like Buddha Dhamma Sangha from a, an American conditioned mind is, is very different from a realization and an accurate use of those terms and an insightful understanding of Buddha Dhamma Sangha as refuges. So sometimes uh, Buddha Dhamma Sangha become merely sentiments in the mind of a Westerner because one tends to interpret the word Buddha Dhamma Sangha in, 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 uh, and see it in very uh, um, prejudiced or biased or highly influenced ways. Let's say the word God in the Christian sense of God is, has a, it's a highly uh, emotive word, it has 
It's, uh, and yet it can be used for triviality. We use it as an exclamation. Uh, we can use it almost as a curse. God uh, is, is, uh, it, it can be seen in just very childish and superficial ways. It can, we can have very strong reactions against the word. Like kind of dedicated atheists and anti-theists and have a cause against the theistic religions or devout, dedicated uh, deniers of God. But all that comes out of the same uh, conditioned mind as, as the mind that believes in God or doesn't believe in God. It's, it's still going around with the same problem, but just being positive or negative about it. So we're not trying to convert you to become Buddhists or to believe in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And we have, we have trouble with the, because our, our language does convey a sense of, uh, we're used to thinking of religion as believing. What do you believe in? Uh, we are thinking, we are, our perceptions of religion is that you, that it must, there, there is a God or some ultimate reality or some absolute, some, something, some, something usually in, in some uh, pers personified term. And because the Buddha never would uh, do that, then the, the Western mind seems quite baffled because there's uh, people doubt whether Buddhism is really a religion because it doesn't, uh, doesn't have a metaphysical doctrinal statement that one has to accept or believe in. Even the refuges, the, the way I've been teaching refuges, it's not, they're not doctrines or uh, th conditions that you have to believe in to become a Buddhist, are they? they? They are for reflection, for realization. You realize increasingly the refuge rather than just create a, a kind of uh, idea of a refuge, or a sentiment, or a belief. I remember going one time to a place, a community, where they had, uh, they had, they'd become a kind of Dharma community here in England, uh, and had dismissed Buddha, and uh, kind of didn't want to be bothered with that. Uh, but one of the people there, a woman, was was talking about Dhamma all the time. She says, I just love the Dhamma. I just, whenever I'm in trouble, I go to the Dhamma. And the Dhamma answers all my needs. And <coughs> talking about Dhamma just like it was God. <laughs> and she'd get, you know, she had created Dhamma into some something, uh, some, some kind of sentiment that meant a lot to her. The Dhamma looks after us, the Dhamma takes care of us, uh, the Dhamma will protect me, the Dhamma this, the Dhamma that, it's just like my sister. She said, of Jesus and God, it's Dhamma. We can do that with Buddha too, if you want, or Kuan Yin, or, or uh, Bodhisattvas of various kinds, the personifications anthropomorphic uh, symbols. 
speak to to our hearts a lot. We have to, to put things into symbolic forms in order to reach some, our hearts rather than just our intellects. But the the aim of refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is to realize is a realization of the heart itself, being that which is truly real, rather than uh, say, believing in ideas or concepts, sentiments, doctrines that warm our hearts or inspire our minds or give us a sense of, of confidence or safety or protection. Some people find Buddhism difficult because it doesn't doesn't give a it's not it doesn't deal or doesn't go into metaphysical speculation. So we find ourselves struggling with with uh, with our Christian conditioned minds. Because I mean, from speaking for myself, my mind was very much uh, from the early innocent years of my life, I was uh, brought up as a very, uh, in a very devoutly Christian family where God and Jesus Christ meant a lot and were spoken of in ways uh, that were regarded as realities. And uh, God is here and loves you and Jesus is our Savior. All these were were probably some of the first uh, things I've ever heard in my life. You know, the way my mother, especially my mother, would talk and what she believed in was very much in that vein. Believing in a God that created her and that protected her, sent his only begotten son to save her, and a sense of gratitude and faith and trust and belief in the whole lot. Never not ever a question, a doubt, I think, entered my mother's mind about Christianity. She was not a doubter. She believed in the whole package and everything in it. It's probably my mother. <laughs> 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 well, to believe in in such goodness is certainly uh, bring, brought a lot of comfort, emotional comfort. I mean, it's a life is a pretty difficult experience for anyone, any one of us, and. To have a belief, uh, an unwavering kind of a mind that that is tot willing to totally accept the whole thing unquestioningly, complete faith in in what the priests say, and and uh, and and quite a interest in studying the Bible. And my mother really knew her Bible backwards and forwards. She wore out so many Bibles just time just in my lifetime, just wore them out from reading them over and over again. So this was certainly brought her a, into a state of, uh, she was a very, very good person, and, and I think this helped her a lot, obviously, to deal with uh, 
problems of, of human life. But then her son had a different problem. He was a doubter. And uh, was mind would just couldn't get around those Christian doctrines. Just found them, uh, when I started thinking about them, I, was, I don't really believe any of this. I believed it only before because I never questioned it. And this, this was the, this was what was my parents said was right, this is what you should do, this is, this is the, the truth, because they, are, they know what's good for me. And then as you grow older, you begin to question whether they know really what's good for you or not. And you, begin, you can even rebel, and even just be, uh, you know, obstinate, determined to, to uh, just rebel against anything that they, they want you to do, I'm not going to do it. They want you to believe in God, you're not going to do it. They want you to go to church, I won't do it. I wasn't that bad, I wasn't uh, uh, that rebellious. But mentally I found um, Christian doctrine unacceptable to my mind. I didn't, it didn't, it didn't touch my heart. I've never liked the idea of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for me. That doesn't at all inspire my mind. And uh, when, when the Christians say that with tears in their eyes, I, they must be crazy. Uh, he died for you, Samato. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'm supposed to kind of fall down in a heap of gratitude. Praise the Lord. And actually, it just doesn't mean anything to me. I can't, I can't get any kind of emotion going except uh, mild aversion. Then we had, we were brought up to, like with the Holy Communion, we, uh, in the high, uh, high Anglican Church, the Anglo-Catholic Church in Seattle. And we would go up and they, we would, uh, I was an altar boy, the priest would consecrate, they believe in, the, they have the apostolic succession, just like the Roman Catholics, and, and you, you're told that in a certain point in the Mass, these priests, have been given the, because they're ordained priests following the apostolic succession, that these priests can actually convert this wine and bread into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And it's done a kind of a transubstantiation, kind of, where in some magical part of the Mass, this bread is no longer bread, and this wine is no longer wine, even though it looks like bread and wine, it's actually flesh and blood. Well, when you're a child, you can, you don't, you, you, you don't quite get it, but when you start thinking about it later on, you can, what a grotesque custom. <laughs> 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 to, to eat 
is a cannibal type customer. And you, you got quite repulsive, the idea of eating uh, Jesus' body and blood, drinking his blood, is, sounds ghoulish. So, these, these kind of things, obviously, were not the, the kind of, of doctrines and beliefs that, that were going to be my religious path. Now, there, were, there was a lot of uh, the, the same aspiration and longing in the heart to realize truth or to know God or whatever ways you want to put it. The mind was, the, I was con conditioned to think in terms of to, to have find God, to know God or to believe. Uh, that seemed to be the best they could offer you was a belief in God. Seemed to be the, that's what you had to do was to believe. But there was something also very much a kind of intuition which I felt very strongly, even at a young age, that, that, uh, that one had to really know these things. That if there is a God, or, and if these things are real, then, you ha then there is a direct path, some way of direct knowledge that must be possible, otherwise it didn't seem, it seemed so kind of, such a clumsy and inadequate thing to, to, to bother with, that you, you had to kind of take on faith and believe all these things that you couldn't possibly prove, hoping that when you died, you'd done the right thing, go to the right place. And the whole thing seemed to be lacking in, in, in any real intelligence or or it seemed to be just a, a, such a, a, a foolish uh, and uninteresting approach. And I think in, in most of us, uh, the, 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 the intuitive sense, there's something that, that, that on, on the conditioned plane, your mind thinks in certain ways and patterns, but there's also the intuitive mind, a kind of a, a direct knowing that that is not proclaimed or even respected in Western uh, psychology. Intuition is, is almost put down as a kind of totally untrustworthy experience. We say, say women's intuition, we tend to think of it as, as untrustworthy or, you know, because of something women make up or their feelings or emotions or intuitive knowledge is not, not fully appreciated or really uh, uh, considered a part of uh, the human uh, experience. Because the Western world, both in its religion and in its uh, uh, science, place so much importance on the conditioned realm and logic and reason. So that we, we develop these these uh, intellectual systems. Uh, it's a kind of deductive use of them um, taking a position like a, a doctrinal position, a theistic doctrine, and then deducing from that the logic is a deduction from I believe in God, and then, then logic comes from, from that premise. 
or science does the same thing. It's through through uh, trying to to figure things out from a preconception or a metaphysical doctrine or a theory or an idea. And so the, the Western mind is very much programmed to do that, to try to, to uh, logically deduce from from a uh, uh, from a, a position uh, the, and come up with some kind of answer. Then in uh, meditation, we find ourselves to ask to trust more in intuitive experience. So that you're, but then we we, we don't really know what that is in terms of uh, Western uh, Western uh, terminology because intuition is not a is not a function of mind that we uh, pay attention to or even understand. And yet, that's what, if we didn't have intuition, if we didn't use intuition in our lives, we would, we wouldn't, uh, we would merely be kind of just robots, uh, just kind of programmed uh, uh, zombies. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have any, we, we wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't have a, a, a spontaneous, a spontaneity, an ability to, to experience life in any profound way. We'd merely be uh, a kind of computerized uh, animal. At least in even instinct, uh, there's a certain spontaneity uh, on the instinctual plane that, that, uh, that animals have that we can totally suppress with all our ideas, views, and opinions that have been programmed into the mind. So then we romanticize. Look, the past, since the 60s, I think they've tried to, let's go back to being spontaneous instinctually and then see where that's taken us. AIDS and all the rest. <laughs> kind of one-parent families and in endless problems with with uh, on the on the just trying to uh, deal with uh, the sexual drive of a of a human being by by sentimentalizing it or romanticizing it, thinking that it it's good to go back to being more kind of what we call spontaneous and natural, doing what comes naturally doing what, what our instincts, following our instincts, <coughs> instinctual drives and desires and impulses. But we can't go back to that anymore, can we? We, we try and it doesn't work. We can't really, uh, we, we, uh, with all the efforts made towards a kind of hedonism and experimentations with sexuality over the past 25, 30 years, the results have not been terribly impressive on a, on a positive way, or kind of enlightening or uplifting or ennobling to the human situation. We tend to find ourselves feeling a lot of guilt and a sense of degradation and waste of time and misuse. Because obviously that, that we can't revert back to 
a primitive level of experience anymore. We can't, we can't have the spont instinctual spontaneity of the animal realm. or even a more primitive state of human activity. We have to come to terms with uh, uh, the, the way things are and the way our minds work according to the, the uh, cultural conditioning that we've experienced. We're not trying to say, say the way they do it in Thailand. We have to become like Thais or we can, uh, Western people can romanticize people who live in different cultures. And we, we, used to, we used to romanticize Northeast Thailand. Look at how in touch they are with their bodies, we'd say. They don't have these gangly, clumsy movements like we have. Those big, ugly Americans with our gangling bodies and clumsy movements and, and trying to get around and do things in a in a very uh, graceful and, and uh, skillful way of movement uh, that the Thai monks could, could move so, so gracefully and so well and immediately kind of clump around like big hippopotamuses, hippopotami. Knocking over things and causing <laughs> great disruptions to to a scene, we could be quite, quite clumsy and insensitive. I remember when I was in Borneo in the Peace Corps, we'd, I loved it to romanticize the headhunters. And the, 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 I lived on a sea coast where, the, where the, a lot of the native people were into piracy. And I, anything, one could, one could always make out somehow being a pirate in Borneo or a headhunter in in the jungles, or a, a rice farm in Thailand, was somehow always a lot better than being a middle-class white American. Because one was just so eager to, at least my tendency, was to dwell on what's wrong and to blame everything on, the, on America or the middle class or and to raise up in a very sentimental, romantic ideas of people who live in different countries, or seeing them in, in, uh, as being examples of what you should be, because you, you shouldn't be the way you are. Well, this is sentimentalizing again. The, what is it? The noble savage and the and the pure uh, peasant and the. And these images are quite poetic, quite beautiful in their way. But we can't become that way anymore, and we? We can't do that. It's not, that doesn't come. Uh, they didn't go through the process that, that we've gone through. We've had to go through a, a, a different process of going through, uh, say, a... a a, a, a society, say, in, in where I grew up, a family that was basically devoutly Christian, but lived in a society that uh, really didn't believe one word of it. The educational system and the, and the attitudes of my generation 
And what was being praised and held up as being intelligent and sensible wasn't Christianity. And it wasn't the, the bread and wine being the transubstantiation uh, the, into the body and blood of Christ. That was, that was what my mother told me and the priests. But I was getting all these other messages from everywhere else that that was rubbish. Americans would have called it something else. <laughs> and the, uh, and the, uh, the only sensible thing uh, was, uh, was to um, reject all that. And, and the realities of life you could prove uh, through experimentation. Empirical knowledge was the only important knowledge, was the only knowledge worth trusting. You had to prove, we had to, so that became merely the material world was reality, isn't it? In that context, the only thing you, you know, that we have to, we can say just what the material world that we can feel or smell, taste or touch, because we can all agree that it's this way or that way, then that is ultimate reality, or that's the only reality there is, or what? Well, that gives you a very confused um, perspective on life because the material world is a very unsatisfactory one. And even if you should be able to get the very best of the material world, it's still very unsatisfying. And intuitively you know that there's much more to it than that. Something in you, some some sense behind the senses. In, say, in poetry or in art, one, one senses there's attempts of human beings to, to manifest their intuitions in some form, in either written verse or a written word or in, say, painting or sculpture, whatever, in, in the art, isn't it? There, there, there these, uh, at their best, are expressions of intuitive, of intuition, of an intuition, a, a, a sense for a higher reality or ultimate reality. And these uh, arts were originally uh, for expression of religious, uh, these kind of intuitive religious insights. But then art and music, the arts in the United States became just another kind of gross um, conditioning towards uh, being attached as an ego. My, one became so, one so exalted art and poetry, put it on such a high pedestal that one uh, uh, identified with it. It became uh, another affirmation of one's ego and conceit rather than an expression, an intuitive expression or manifestation of the ineffable reality. And yet even at its worst, even in its most egotistical and conceited forms, there is something there that has to come out of an intuition, unless it's just totally a superficial, contrived thing.
just a totally kind of silly production. The mind being very conditioned to, to think that the material world was the real world, that uh, the, uh, uh, that there one didn't even have concepts such as unconditioned, unborn, uncreated. Immo we had immortal, but that was uh, another kind of poetic term, or one didn't really know what that was. Immortal, eternal, we had infinity, eternity, immortality. But these tended to be things that one dismissed as, as um, you know, uh, they couldn't be real because you can't prove them in a material form. How can you prove infinity as an object or uh, eternity or immortality? And such things as unconditioned was just totally not uh, outside of, of one's uh, Ex, uh, e conditioning experience. Didn't pick that one up till I became a Buddhist meditator. The Christian conditioning of my mind was, was also even God was not unconditioned or even though we, we assumed God was immortal, it was, God was also, was, was, you know, not logically, the logic was not there. One more or less was believing fragments and bits and pieces, a kind of like a, a, a collage of different things that you'd assemble all in one mass and call it, call it God. And you say it's immortal, but it was merely a, a kind of attribute you ascribed because you, you, didn't, you didn't even know what that meant. You, had no, you didn't have any way of dealing with, with the concept of immortality. That the idea of maybe living forever and as a as a conditioned something or other. And that the idea of, of going to heaven for for eternity, happiness for eternity, uh, going up into heaven and living with God forevermore in a happy state was was the best they could provide for, say, immortality. That one would if one was a good boy and uh, went to church every Sunday, when you die, you'd go up to heaven and you'd be with God in a happy state for, for eternity. So there is always this, this, this maintain, maintaining oneself as a, as a good boy. You should be a good boy who will and if you if you're successful at this goodness, then you will God will take you, accept you, and uh, you will be happy forever. But when you start analyzing that, of course, it, one can no longer accept such a concept. It's it's childish. It seems foolish. One feels only a sense of uh, of. Uh, you know, one tends to want to reject it and dismiss it because you're asked to believe it as a, as a as a as a fact, as something that is factual and true, and yet at the same time, there's no way of proving it. 
it's just a hope, hopeful that you, you maybe that the way it is, it, it better be good just just to be make sure that that because uh, if you if you're bad, then you you might go to the other place forever. With Christian teaching, they often talk about talking with God or or having uh, you know God speaking to them, and so that this this was one was always uh, kind of hoping that this would happen as a child, that God would come and speak, make himself known. And that never happened in any kind of way that I could uh, recognize in any way. Now, this is a reflection for you on just uh, the uh, social conditioning, cultural conditioning of a mind, what, what we have been, what has been put into it the way the concepts, the perceptions, the attitudes, the beliefs, uh, both on the theistic side and the atheistic side, the religious and the scientific, the, the, and also one's own uh, uh, generation. I'm sure the 60s, uh, the 60s and 70s, people that grew up in, the, in those times were, had, uh, were allowed a little more kind of uh, wider margins to operate in than, say, in the 40s and 50s. There's more available, more information available, more opportunities, more freedom to explore and experiment. But still, that was done from the sense of me and mine and the and the attitudes and, and uh, views, opinions that come out of a, uh, a culture, which is, of course, all our cultures are conditioned through avicca, through not understanding, rather than through understanding. So one can say in the Buddhist path, this is where we we um, in this on this retreat, we need to really contemplate this conditioning of the mind, <coughs> not to, not to criticize it, but to just recognize the way we think as as just that, rather than as being self or being more than that. The way we tend to react to things. Uh, the emotional reactions are conditioned also so that we to see that as as a, a reactive condition rather than as a personal problem because the, the basic delusion is based on this this uh, premise I am a person I am a a man or a woman, I am this or that. This whole view of I am, I am, uh, I believe in God or I don't believe in God. I believe, I don't believe. I am a Buddhist, I'm not a Christian. One is looking at this, this sense of I uh, as a 
uh, as say as the, the thought itself of I comes into consciousness, what is that like? You can reflect, you can observe just the, the effect of thinking I, I am. And you can quite d intentionally and deliberately think I am. It still has an effect, isn't it? There's a strong feeling of being somebody. There's a whole sequence of associations based on that belief, I am. I am the body, I am my feelings, I am my thoughts, I am a person. I should, I shouldn't, I must, I mustn't, I ought, I ought not to. I'm a good person, a bad person, I'm, I'm uh, all kinds of things, all kinds of uh, I am, they can go on and on and on, uh, 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 just one thought after another, just starting with I am, and, and one could spend hours just thinking about oneself as an I. This evening, well, at the walking uh, Jongrom out in the Buddha Grove at uh, sunset time. There was a very beautiful sunset this evening and I was out there walking back and forth as the, uh, aware of the silhouette of the uh, trees against the horizon and the beautiful colors, soft, uh, gentle colors, the, the bracing cold, a refreshing uh, coldness of the air. This a, a very, as a, walking between two of those trees, one was a yew tree, and the breeze kind of blowing through the, the, the branches of this yew tree small uh, yew tree where, where the, uh, one could just observe the, the fluttering of the little uh, are they leaves of the, or needles of the yew tree. And there is, certainly the mind was, there is no thinking of self, there's no need to, to project any self onto this scene because the mind is 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 receptive and open, reflective, sensitive to this as is. <coughs> and in that experience of course there's there is certainly uh, there's a a sense of of there's there's a sense of peacefulness and simplicity because there's no there's no self created onto it there's no there's nothing added there is just the the, the natural beauty of being and receptive and open to the way it is the one can reflect on it one can think in a reflective way rather than in a conditioned way. Now this I'm trying to to bring to your attention the difference between reflective thinking and 
uh, just habitual thinking. There's a difference, isn't there? You, thought is not really a problem. It's a great tool. It's a, it's a beautiful, uh, a miraculous tool we have to use. Or it can be merely uh, a, a programming uh, from a bias, from a position. And one is seen always from the position of me and mine, out of ignorance. Abhicca means I interpret everything that happens, everything that happens, whether it's just an, an act of nature or, not, or the way things are, it's always has something of me added on to it. Because that's how my mind's conditioned to think. That's the, that's the habitual thinking mind. And if I'm not aware of that, if I'm not aware and I don't know it as that, then I just get lost in it every time. Whatever happens to me, no matter where I am, I get lost. And sometimes it, you forget about it and you have maybe a, a very beautiful uh, intuitive experience, but then the old patterns come rushing back and, and going on and on and on in the old doubting ways or conceited attitudes or or whatever uh, way that you're programmed and conditioned to, to react to life and you through that through your thinking process. But reflective thought is 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 using to bring attention to the way it is. Rather than to to interpret it uh, from as a, as a personal experience, or to to add to dump rubbish onto the moment, or to to try to possess it and keep it, or try to solidify it and own it, or or make it more than what it is, or to dismiss it as as trivial and unimportant, or whatever way your ego tends to operate, it will always make a problem or cause difficulties or corrupt your life's experience from the conditioned mind, the conditioning out of avicca, avicca bhajaya sankhara. Where reflective thought, and this is what the Buddha's teachings are, they're reflective thought. So there is this. This is the way it is. There is consciousness. If that's, say, in that, uh, out in the field, the uh, Buddha grove, walking Jongrom, there's consciousness. Consciousness is this way. The eyes are able to see the, the uh, silhouettes of the trees and the wind blowing through the yew trees. That's conscious. And in that reflection, there's a, a genuine appreciation of a conscious experience. It's not, I'm conscious, or look at me, uh, kind of analyzing the situation, or I must do this, or I mustn't attach, or you know, as Buddhist meditators, we can take a position that we shouldn't get attached. So if anything pleasing comes by, we say, I shouldn't get attached to it. I shouldn't get attached to the sunset. That would be a conditioned reaction. Or 
say reflective thought allows us to to bring into to, to notice to remind ourselves to pay attention to the way it is there's this consciousness and there's this uh, this is a the sense of peace the mind was peaceful and calm there's this this sense of calm felt the the the, uh, the cold on one's face the cold breeze was quite pleasant sense of, of being at peace and content with with this uh, just this very simple experience of walking back and forth in the Buddha grove at sunset. So one was using thought to to look at things, to notice, to pay attention to the way it is. Where if one is doing that say walking Joan Grome in uh, out of a sense of an ego and uh, a compulsiveness I've got to practice keep my practice together I've got to keep attention on my feet or I've got to uh, I shouldn't look at that or I all the all the or, or the way the mind can be so completely involved with something of your own making that you don't even notice there's a sunset or that the wind's blowing through the yew tree, or the, the, the pleasant feeling of the cold breeze on your face. One, need, one can just be completely oblivious to all that, because you might be thinking about, uh, when are they going to ring the bell and I can go have some tea, or, well, or I, my mind wanders too much, and or you can be complaining about the cold. It's too cold out here. Or you can be thinking about all other kinds of what you're going to do after the retreat. So that the mind, say that is the conditioned mind out of ignorance. It's always thinking about the future or the past. Where in the present moment, say, we, we reflect on the way it is. And right now, this is the way it is. We're all conscious at this moment, aren't we? This consciousness is this way. You can hear my voice or see me. There's, this is consciousness, being able to, to listen. You can understand the words that I'm saying, so those words are affecting you in some way. But they're not words to convince you or convert you, or, or to uh, increase a sense of yourself as a person, but it's the words I'm using are for reflection and contemplation, to, to try to, say, bring, to help you to remember to encourage you toward trusting in, in intuitive awareness of the present moment. Rather than to 
be a, a Buddhist meditator who has practicing in order to become enlightened in the future. Or somebody who's going on a two-month retreat at Amravati in order to get their practice together, develop their samadhi, or, or be able to get more insights, or get some blissful moments, or, or maybe you, you've got all kinds of uh, you know, fears about it, or views about it, about what you've got to do, what you've got to develop, what you have to become what you have to get rid of. How many of you really think about when the retreat's over, then I'll have to do this or that? There's so many things one can think of doing while you're on the retreat. Things that the world, worldly conditioning tends to always have a kind of urgent quality to it. Find yourself suddenly think, oh, this this should be done right now. <gasps> and you find, and that sense of this should be done right now is has a kind of jumpy urgency to it. So that, but when you reflect on it, you can see that jumpy kind of urgent. I've got to do this. This is really important. You can't. <gasps> is a conditioning of the mind, isn't it? It's. It's a condition, it arises and ceases. <coughs> and worldly duties and responsibilities have a, a very, are, are oftentimes very important to us. We, we don't want to be irresponsible uh, people. I mean, we're, we're bhikkhus, siladras, and we're, we're supposed to live, live in a high moral plane and we're supposed to be responsible for our lives, ideals. And so then there's a fear of being, you know, irresponsible if we don't be concerned and worry about life itself. How many of you often have discovered that that you you can feel guilty if you're not worrying because you, you think you're being irresponsible? that worrying about everything can seem like you're really caring and you're very concerned. I've seen that myself. Worry has this sense of almost an obligation that I'm not being a, a proper abbot of a monastery or a very good teacher unless I worry about you. But to worry and, and about the monastery and worry about you. I've got so many people to worry about. You are my burdens. And if I'm not worried, then I don't care. I mean, I'm being irresponsible, frivolous, shallow. So the, the world, worldly values, they have this, this uh, power over our minds. They have convince us that, that that particular worldly condition is absolutely important, essential, necessary. But we can also reflect on that feeling of this is absolutely important, this is necessary, this must, should, ought, have to, gotta, 
And you can you can observe it, can't you? You can observe, you can witness that that feeling of compulsion, urgency, must the musts of life. Nibbana the word nibbana is sometimes translated as cool. It's interesting to reflect on nibbana as the experience of coolness. The sense of cool, even as a slangy California expression, cool man, cool, or that which is able to to be uh, mindful and uh, not caught up in the heat of an emotion or a situation. So in the reflective when we reflect, when we bring into our conscious awareness the way things are, they, a sense of having to do something, urgency, or, or the, the views about ourselves and others, and the, the intimidation of the world, and, and the uh, ambitions and goals and fears and desires that we experience, we reflect on them where we are not we're not uh, conditioning ourselves in a negative way to get rid of them, but to, by reflecting on them, we, we are looking at them. We are recognizing conditions as conditions. This is the way it is. The mind, there's, a, there's the, realiza- the, there's the uh, insight into letting go and the realization of non-attachment. There's the breath of the body, there's the sound of silence, there's the feeling, heat or cold, or the way it is. These are, these are the, this is the way it is. This is, this is not me or mine, is it? The breath of, of the body is this way. It breathes whether I'm thinking me or mine. Whether I thought the thought of me and mine doesn't have, you know, it doesn't uh, doesn't stop the breathing. Breathing doesn't start with the thought of me and mine. Breathing is this way. When there's no thought of me and mine, it's like this. But one can still feel doubt or or uh, because the one is so used to thinking me and mine and relating and believing in me and mine and and interpreting everything as me and mine so when when uh, when there's no thought of me and mine then we start doubting it doubting of course brings back the me and mine am i being am, am i uh, understanding this or am I just deluding myself? Back into the samsara again. Doubt throws you all right back into samsara, birth and death. Or desire is a, we're so attached and identified with desires that when when there is a, a measure of sometimes the desires say this is boring or this is silly or there's going to be a comment 
or a put-down or some kind of restless agitation or when you just get frightened or there's emotion, emotional reactions. Because the emotional nature is used to being uh, taking, you know, to be given great importance in our lives, how we emotionally, our emotions are, uh, we can, we take very seriously what I think and feel and my feelings and uh, my loves and hates and my likes and dislikes and my highs and lows and this and that. These are very important, these are really important issues to deal with emotional worlds. So the emotions can go all over the place because the emotional nature has never been um, understood, never been trained, never been balanced. So uh, the emotions go up and down all over the place. But as you're aware of emotions as conditions that arise and cease, you reflect that, that emotions feeling like this. Anger is like this. When I'm really angry or resentful or negative or averse, hate, hating somebody or whatever, then it's this way. It feels this way. Or greed or fear. Doubt and worry. Restlessness. Uh, agitation. Confusion like this. It feels like this. It has this kind of kind of mood to it. And that is a reflection on feeling emotion, perception, uh, the way things are. And that is the Buddha contemplating Dhamma, the Buddha knowing the truth, the knowing of the way it is. So I offer this for your reflection for this evening.